Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Father Andrew Mattingly. I am a Catholic priest in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is a podcast where I post homilies and random other stuff that I might teach or speak about. Hope you find something useful and maybe even inspiring. God bless you. I mentioned last month, uh, if you happen to be here on the first Sunday of August, I mentioned that Bishop Johnston, for this final year of this Eucharistic revival, which the U.S. bishops launched a couple years ago, uh, we're entering the final year. And Bishop Johnston, as part of this final year, has asked all priests in our diocese on the first Sunday of the month, between now and next summer, to preach about the Eucharist. So we are at the first Sunday of the month, so I'll be preaching about the Eucharist today. And last month I, I didn't quite have time to prepare what I hoped to turn into kind of a year-long series on some specific theme surrounding the Eucharist. Uh, but I think I've settled on a theme at this point. And so this, will, this Sunday will be the first of basically nine first Sundays between now and next June on a specific aspect of, of the Eucharist. Um, and the aspect that I, I want to preach about is the Eucharist as the sacrament of the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. So the Eucharist as sacrifice. I'd mentioned last month that one of the best ways to understand the Eucharist is to understand the three ends or purposes uh, for which it was established by Jesus. The first of those is that it was established as the sacrament of his presence among us. So we talk about the real presence of Jesus, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, right? Another, a second sort of purpose for which Jesus established it was the sacrament of spiritual nourishment. So we talk about Holy Communion. This is where we, we literally consume, we eat the Holy Eucharist. This is the sacrament of our spiritual nourishment. It's spiritual food. But the last one, that it's the sacrament of the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary is, I think, oftentimes for most Catholics, a little bit murkier in terms of being able to put our finger on exactly what we mean by that. I mean, we, you know, we used to talk about the sacrifice of the Mass. We understand that it's the, you know, a representation of Calvary in some way. But oftentimes it still remains just a little bit out of our reach. What exactly do we mean when we talk about the Eucharist as sacrifice? Most Catholics would say, okay, real presence, I can kind of grasp that. You know, Holy Communion, I can kind of get that. But the sacrificial piece is, is a bit more complex and nuanced. So I want to go through the next nine Sundays and, and talk with you all a little bit about that. And the way I want to do it is today, I want to talk a little, zooming way out, zooming out from Christian context, but, but just looking at human nature and how it's part of our nature as human beings to have an instinct to offer sacrifice to God. As I'll explain later, this is very much clouded over in our modern culture for a variety of reasons, but deep down in each of our hearts there's this instinct that we need to be offering sacrifice to God. And that's where I want to start today. Uh, next month would be on the sacrifice of the Old Covenant, sacrifices of the Old Covenant in Judaism. 
And then we'll talk about the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. We'll spend several weeks on the New Covenant sacrifice, which of course is the Mass. And then if we have time at the end, we'll talk about how to participate in the New Covenant sacrifice, the Mass. And if we really have time at the end, maybe some fruits of the sacrifice. So that's kind of the, the journey I want to embark upon over the next year. Uh, today's topic is going to be the most unusual of those. We're really going to have to sort of like expand our mind a little bit um, to get out of our normal way of seeing things. Because again, as I mentioned, this idea that it's instinctual, it's in human nature, that I would be drawn to, to, to realize that I, I have to sacrifice to God, uh, to this divinity that is the source of all things, uh, is very much obscured in, in the modern day. And so for, for me to kind of explain how this is part of human nature, you're going to have to sort of expand your mind a little bit. If it's helpful, you might think about, you know, everything that I'm going to try and explain to you here this morning. You might imagine some guy on like a Pacific island who's never heard of Christianity, never heard of any of the major world religions. Like what would be his instinct just within his human nature when it comes to this idea of offering sacrifice to God. So we'll call him Joe. So just imagine Joe, the Pacific Islander. And uh, that maybe help give you sort of an image of where some of these principles that I want to explain. So first of all, what is religious sacrifice? We talk about it being part of human nature to offer sacrifice to God. What are we talking about? Uh, a very simple definition of religious sacrifice would be an external act of the virtue of religion. An external act of the virtue of religion. Now most people when they hear the word religion, they do not think about a virtue. They think about some conglomeration of beliefs and a group of people that you know, follows it and so on. But religion is also a virtue. A virtue. And Sacrifice is one of the many, we say, external acts that belong to the virtue of religion, right? So what is the virtue of religion? We'll start there. Virtue of religion is simply giving to God what we owe Him. That's the virtue of religion. Some of you who studied virtue before may recognize that that sounds a lot like the virtue of justice. One of the four cardinal virtues. Justice is simply the virtue by which we give to other people what is owed to them, what is due to them. Someone who is a just man gives to everyone around him what is their due. If he's an employer, he gives them a just wage, and so on and so forth. So this is the virtue of justice. When it comes to God, we also owe God certain things. Right? And we call this the virtue of religion. So what do we owe to God? What do we owe to God? Probably the simplest word to use to encompass kind of the entirety of what we owe God is worship. What is worship? Worship is kind of this combination of A, acknowledging that I am a creature, that I'm limited and finite, that I'm not God, in other words. It's acknowledging that reality, rather than, as we're often tempted to do, living in a fantasy world that 
we think that we're our own God. So number one, worship is acknowledging this reality that I'm not God. And simultaneously, it is a handing over of my whole life into the care of God. Sort of saying, okay, I recognize that everything I have and am comes from God, so now I'm giving it back. These things are inherent in the idea of worship, which we owe to God. This is a principle of what we call the natural law. Every human being, because of the fact that they've received everything that they have and are from God, you didn't create your own life, you didn't give yourself any of the good things that are in your life, those all came to you from somewhere else. It's a principle of what we call the natural law, that, that therefore, I have a duty in justice to give it back to the one who, who gave it to me originally. And we, right, we call this just worship, this sort of self-gift of our whole life uh, back to God. Now, this worship of God is primarily an act of the heart. Right? The virtue of religion is primarily something spiritual. That's its essence, resides in the heart. This acknowledgement that I'm not God and this decision to hand my life over to Him, this is something that's a disposition of the heart. That being said, because we have bodies, we have a desire to manifest what is in the heart in an external way. You see this in human relationships. A young man is in love with a young woman. At some point, he can't resist letting that bubble over from something that is just interior to something exterior. So he buys her flowers. Maybe if it's 500 years ago, he serenades her outside her window. You know, he, he does something external to manifest what is internal. You think about somebody who in their heart is experiencing contrition, deep sorrow, because they've hurt somebody they love. Well, at some point, that's going to bubble over into an apology. It's not just going to stay internal. So with the fundamental reason for our existence, which is to worship God, to give our whole self back to Him, that by necessity, because we have bodies, is going to have to be manifested in an external way at some point. It can't just be this interior spiritual thing because we're not pure spirits. So this is where you get into what are called the external acts of religion, which are meant to manifest this disposition of heart. That's the kernel. That's the essence. But it's going to manifest itself externally. And most people would say that the supreme type of external manifestation of worship of God is sacrifice. Sort of like the king of all of the, the modes in which you can manifest this self-gift to God. Some other ways, in case you're wondering, well, what are some other external acts of the virtue of religion? Things like vows would be an external act, making a vow of some kind to God. Things like oblations, which are slightly different than sacrifices, won't go into that. First fruits, tithes, of course we see all of these things in Scripture. These are other sort of external acts that would 
uh, manifest the, the interior virtue of religion. Thomas Aquinas says this, he says, the internal acts of religion take precedence and belong to religion in its essence, while its external acts are secondary and subordinate to the internal acts. As I said, though, just because they're secondary doesn't mean they aren't also necessary, right? They are because, again, we are embodied creatures, not just pure spirits. So now we get into the question, original question, what is, what is religious sacrifice? Okay, it's an, it's an external act of the virtue of religion, but, but what does it actually look like? Again, I want you to think about Pacific Islander Joe here. What does sacrifice look like in, in most sort of religious cultures in the history of mankind? It looks like this. These are the, I'm going to go through the common characteristics and then we'll highlight some like specific things that, you know, you can add certain intentions to a sacrifice, but, but these characteristics are common to all types of, of sacrifice to God. Number one, I take some physical thing and this physical thing represents me or you might say even better represents the disposition of my heart this this desire to give myself to my creator to acknowledge that i'm a creature and that he's god so i take a physical thing and i sacrifice it to god by changing it in some way so this thing is either the two ways typically that a sacrifice would be changed is if it's a living creature like an animal, it's killed. Or if it's something like food, it's burned in a fire. So something is either killed or burned, sometimes both. So there's a change that this thing undergoes. And what that is symbolic of is that this item which belonged to me this was my goat, or this was my wheat, or whatever. This thing that, that was part of my dominion that, that belonged to me. By undergoing this change, I'm now transferring it to the dominion of God. I'm, I'm turning it into something sacred. The word sacrifice comes from two Latin words, which means to make holy. Sacrum facere. So I take this profane thing, this thing that belonged to me, this goat, this wheat, whatever. It undergoes this change, which is then symbolic that now it belongs to God. Now it is sacred. And what is that whole process symbolic of? It's symbolic, again, of what's happening in the heart. That's the essence. That I'm handing over my heart to God. I'm saying my heart is no longer mine. My life is no longer mine. My, my life now belongs to God, to, to the sovereign creator of, of all things. So there's this external manifestation of what should be happening in the heart, right? So this is common to all sacrifices. Now, sometimes an additional reason would be kind of tacked on for why somebody in some pagan culture would, would make a sacrifice such as to thank God for something. So sacrifice is always this sort of self-gift to God, this handing over of my life to God, we got that. But also it could be an act of thanksgiving, 
It could be an act of petition, begging God for some particular grace or something that, you know, that rain would fall on the crops, right? It's a drought. So we offer sacrifice to God to renew our commitment to Him, but also to ask Him for rain. The sacrifice also, and I'll go into this slightly more in detail, one of the big, big additional purposes of sacrifice universally in, in every culture is to atone for sin. Now, it's universal across cultures that offered these forms of sacrifice that the way you would offer a sacrifice for that purpose, to atone for sin, would be that you would take an animal, kill it, and pour out its blood upon the ground. I never thought I'd talk about this in a homily, but here we are. <laughs> That's uni a universal phenomenon in, in religious practice prior to uh, Christianity in particular, is that to atone for sin, you would sacrifice the animal and you pour out its blood upon the ground. What in the world is that symbolic of? Well, if Joe, the Pacific Islander, realizes that he's offended his island god in some way, he recognizes that he's been tainted, he's no longer in right relationship with this deity, and so that has to be fixed somehow. Since all ancient peoples believed that life was found in the blood, that blood is the seat of, of human life, because if you lose enough blood, you die. So there was this universal understanding that, that blood is the seat of life. Well, if Joe, the Pacific Islander, is thinking, okay, my blood has become tainted, my very life has become tainted because I've offended my deity, I've sinned, somehow I have to get rid of this tainted blood. Well, I'm not going to do that to myself. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this goat that I own, which is representative of me. I'm going to have the priest on my island kill the goat, which is symbolic that now the goat, which represents me, is in God's dominion. So here, I, my, me and my sin is now in God's hands. And now the priest is going to pour out the tainted, impure part of me on the ground. He's going to pour the blood out upon the ground. In other words, symbolically washing away my sin, casting it away, separating it from me. Right? So that was the, the, the specific additional purpose of sacrifice to atone for sin. It was a universal phenomenon uh, across, across religious cultures. All right. So what do we make of all this? One thing I'd call to your attention is that in our modern day United States, the instinct to worship God, number one, and second of all, to atone for sin uh, is almost completely evaporated. We might ask why that is. If this was an instinct prevalent in every culture, in all places and times, for all of human history, why, why don't you see people just kind of have this urge, I have to worship God, <laughs> right? I think one of the reasons for that is what you might call practical atheism. So practical atheism is when someone acknowledges that they believe in God, but they live as if he wasn't the source of everything they have and are. This is a very dangerous thing for us to fall into in 2023 USA. Why? because we feel like we have everything in abundance, 
I mean, for most of us, we've never had to worry about where our next meal is coming from. We've never had to worry about, you know, big questions of like safety from marauding bands of, you know, <laughs> whoever. Right? So we live in a very sort of secure place where all of our needs are provided for, for the most part. So it's very, very easy to forget that God is the ultimate source of all of this. And if we forget that, we're not going to have an instinct to worship Him, to acknowledge that He's the source of all that we have. Because really what's going on in our minds and hearts is that we think the source of our existence and thriving is technology, is progress, is this or that other like worldly thing that I can point to. And we forget that behind those things is God. Oftentimes, this is actually why disasters in people's lives can sometimes be the best thing for their conversion, because it reminds them that ultimately God is in control and we're all reliant on Him, and it can lead them to a renewal of, of faith. So that's one of the reasons why you don't find people with this sort of <laughs> urge to, to worship God, whereas you saw that in every culture from time immemorial. If you go to third world countries today, it'll be much more prevalent, much more prevalent. A natural instinct of faith and that I, that I owe worship to God um, because, because there's, you know, life is a little less predictable. <laughs> and also we might say, well, why is there no instinct anymore to, you know, offer sacrifice to atone for sin? A large part of that is just a loss of the sense of sin in our culture saying, oh, sin doesn't exist, it's just, you know, broken systems or something, or, you know, then you have moral relativism that says we don't really know what sin is. So those things kind of obscure the natural instinct when we sin to realize, okay, I need to fix this. I need to make atonement for this by, by offering sacrifice. So it's a lot of random things <laughs> that I've laid out for you, but a lot of these principles are going to be very important as we go through Old Covenant sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, uh, New Covenant sacrifice. Um, the ones that I, I hope you're able to keep, keep in mind is that every act of sacrifice to God always entails this, this aspect of worship, of self-gift. So it's always going to entail that. Sometimes it's also going to have tacked onto it other purposes, thanksgiving, petition, atonement for sin. It's always going to entail some change that's undergone by the thing that is sacrificed. You'll see why this is important. Look at Jesus on the cross. The change he underwent was going from life to death. You look at the mass. The bread and wine is, undergoes a change. It's transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Every sacrifice will always entail a change occurring in, in the thing that is being sacrificed. Um, and then every sacrifice, this is maybe the most important principle to remember, it's always this correspondence of external to internal. This is going to be a wildly important thing to remember, especially when we look at Jesus on the cross. The supreme sacrifice that happened on the cross was not the external offering of Jesus' body, but the internal sacrifice going on in his sacred heart. We easily forget that. So this maybe the most important principle about sacrifice to remember is there's this, the essence is in the heart, and then the external manifests uh, what, what, is, what is inside. 
So I hope you can chew on some of these things. Um, and hopefully, if you're able to be here on the first Sundays, it'll sort of, it'll sort of build. Um, and eventually, we'll, we'll get a better appreciation for the Eucharist as, uh, as sacrifice.